We don't have to be very observant to observe that our world and our lives are filled with tragedy. I'm not bringing you any news to say the news is filled with tragedy. Our lives are filled with tragedy. There are all different kinds of tragedies. There are criminal tragedies like shootings, terrorism and the like. There are natural tragedies like storms, earthquakes. There are tragedies of human error like crashes or structural collapses. There are health tragedies like cancer and disease. Tragedy, tragedy, tragedy. So what do we do? Well, humanity in general, where appropriate, perhaps starts stricter laws or new laws or different building codes or new safety measures. Those are good things. We try to do our best to, to curb the tragedies or to, to respond more appropriately to the, to the tragedies. And then Christians should respond as well. The Bible says Christians should weep with those who weep. Uh, Christians are to be compassionate. Christians are to love their neighbor as themselves. And so tragedies give us opportunities. Not that we always do a good job, but it, they give us opportunities to, again, show sympathy, kindness, compassion. But if we stop there as Christians, I would like to submit to you that it's not quite Christian enough. We really do need to work hard and do a good job of being compassionate. We could all do better. We really do need to love our neighbors as they're in need, and we could all do better. But if your response, if you're a Christian, and my response, if I'm a Christian, to human tragedy of whatever kind, as a Christian response, is only those things, I would like to submit to you that we're not quite Christian enough. That maybe we haven't listened to Christ clearly enough or enough to learn what Christianity is all about. I like to use that now and then because sometimes we say Christianity and we don't really realize or remember the obvious that Christianity is about Christ. It's Christianity. So what we're going to do this morning is learn some lessons about how to respond to tragedy in hopes of making our response a full Christian response. Yes, compassion. Yes, kindness. Yes, love. But there's a missing element, if not missing elements. And so we're going to learn from Jesus today. Imagine that. We're going to learn from Jesus today in the Gospel according to Luke. So if you have a Bible, you can find the Gospel according to Luke. As a church, we're working our way through the Gospel according to Luke. And this morning, we find ourselves in chapter 13. And Jesus has asked questions about human tragedy, different kinds of human tragedy. And he responds in some ways that are somewhat shocking. And so what we're going to do this morning, uh, as far as the takeaway is concerned, we're, gonna, we're going to observe three lessons that we can learn when tragedy strikes. So three lessons to learn when tragedy strikes. I'll preview the lessons now. There'll be a lesson about morality. And it probably isn't what you think, but there'll be a lesson about morality. There'll be a lesson about repentance, repentance, and there will be a lesson about mercy. So morality, repentance, and mercy. And uh, like Jesus so many times, he, he shocks us. Uh, we think we know who Jesus is, and we think we know what he taught, and we forget so easily. And this might be one of those cases. It's, it's like counterintuitive. Um, 
And I kind of like that because I, I think I know everything and that's just our tendency. And I like it that Jesus engaged people who thought they knew everything too. And uh, he shocked them now and then and he shocks us so that we might, uh, again, have a, a more Christian view of, of Christianity, if you will. And by the way, at the end of the service, we are celebrating the Lord's Supper. So just so you know, you may have seen, seen when you came in. Um, but we are going to have that be a fitting, uh, fitting conclusion. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, it's a great way of remembering that his work is finished. His work is for us. He's not against us. And so just know that that's going to be a great way for us to finish today. Lesson number one from tragedies. Lesson number one, a lesson in morality. A lesson in morality. Here we go for a surprise. Let's go ahead and look at verse one. If you have a Bible, you can look right there where it says, there were some present at that very time who told him, that is Jesus, about the Galileans. A certain, uh, these are Jewish people from a certain region. So he, he told them about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Pilate is the governor. Pilate is a, a, is a political figure who's in charge. We learn more about Pilate at the end of Jesus' life. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, as the old creed says. Pilate is someone who's in charge. Pilate is a leader. And here, there's a story about Pilate that everyone would have known. If you would have been living then, and a Jewish person in the Middle East, in Jerusalem, you would have known about the story. It's one of the reasons why you would not have liked Pilate. Pilate orchestrated on one occasion, probably Passover, when all the Jewish people are coming into the city uh, to, to do sacrifices, and, and they're coming, and Pilate, for whatever reason, we don't know why, targeted, we would call it a hate crime, we would call it a religious hate crime, he targeted a certain sect of Jewish people who were bringing their animals to do sacrifices, and he had them killed and their animals killed. This is, this was, this is blasphemous if you're a Jewish person. I mean, the very animals they were going to offer to God as, as their best sacrifices is mixed with their blood, and Pilate treated them like the animals, and it's totally offensive. And again, we would call it a hate crime. We call it a religious hate crime. This is awful. This is sinister. This is tragic that such a man as Pilate would do this to these people. Tragic. So here's what's going on certain group of people come to Jesus, and this happens all the time with Jesus. They, they want to see what he's going to say. So, so they bring a common historical event to Jesus, a contemporary historical event to Jesus, and they want to see what he does. Maybe, we don't know for sure, maybe it's to bait Jesus. Maybe they're baiting him, hoping he speaks out against the government, and so the government will do something against him right then and there. Could very well be what's going on, you see? Let's get Jesus. That'd be the, the most negative way to look at it. More positively, let's see what Jesus thinks about this horrific thing. Let's see what kind of worldview he has. What do you think about that, Jesus, is essentially what they're getting at. So let's keep going now in verse 2 where it says, And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way. Did they experience this awful, horrendous, sinister death? 
mean, no one wants to die, but everybody's going to die. And so we want a certain kind of peaceful death. And here's how I want to leave. And here's how I want to go out. One way you wouldn't want to go out if you were a Jew would be this way. Awful, horrific. And so Jesus says, I've got a question for you. You had a question for me. I'm not going to answer it right now. Jesus does this all the time. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think that they underwent this horrific, awful death because they were worse sinners than other sinners? A sinner is somebody who breaks God's law. Okay? Do you think that's the case? Do you think they were worser, to make up a word for effect? Do you think they were worser sinners than other sinners? Now, more than likely, we're guessing here, but more than likely, Jesus knows that this would have at least been a pretty common opinion. Uh, at least one of Job's friends would say, yeah, that's right. That's why bad things happen. Because if you do a bad thing, then it's a one-to-one connection. A bad thing's going to happen to you. Or vice versa. If good things happen to you, it must prove that you're good. And a lot of times people think this way. If, you, if a good things are happening, prosperity's happening, then that means you're a good person. Bad things are happening to you, that means you're a bad person. Now, I don't know that many people who have that philosophy. Maybe you know more than I do. At least in 21st century America. We, we don't tend to connect those. Sometimes we do. Um, other religions do more so than uh, others. Uh, we do flippantly when we say, oh, that's bad karma or good karma. Well, some people take that statement very seriously. We just use it as sort of a flippant American kind of statement. But if your religion believes in karma, that's actually the reality. You do, do bad, bad will happen. If bad happens, it's because you did bad. Okay? The biggest place we probably see it in American culture is with certain sects of the charismatic movement. So if this bad thing is happening to you, it's proof you don't have enough faith. You don't have enough good faith. So we do see it sometimes there. Um, The reason bad things are happening, you're not prosperous, is because you're doing bad things. Specifically, you don't have enough faith, and that's bad. Okay? So for whatever reason, we may see a lot of this. We may not see a lot of this. Depends on the culture. Depends on the time. Depends on who you hang out with. But this is at least a view that some have. Notice what Jesus says in verse 3. Let's just read the first word. What does he say? No. And it's pretty abrupt. He's going to do this again. No. It's not like, well, let me just think about it and massage it and philosophize a little bit. He's saying that's wrong thinking. That's not right thinking. Don't, don't draw the one-to-one correlation. Something bad happens to someone and so you know they had some kind of secret sin and then, then that's where it showed up. Just like you don't say, we know because good is happening to them, we know that they're an inherently good person. He he says, no, don't do that. If they are baiting him to criticize Pilate, he doesn't take the bait. But he does offer a corrective. You can just jot it down, we won't go there, but it reminds me of a question posed to Jesus in John chapter 9, verse 2. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that, that made him born blind? See, that was that wrong kind of thinking. And Jesus said, it's not about that. He has to correct them. Now, let's step back for a second and think more holistically, big picture, biblical perspective. If Jesus would have said, is it true that bad things happen in this world in general because it is a world filled with sin and the consequence of sin is suffering and death? 
what would the answer have been? Yeah, the answer would be yes. Jesus isn't denying that. I mean, that's a common reality that Jesus talks about, affirms, teaches, has his disciples affirm, has the prophets in the Old Testament before him affirm. It's true. Death and suffering happen in this world in the general sense because of sin. Absolutely, because of what uh, Adam did as the representative of the human race and what we've all been following as examples since then. Yeah, you know what? The reason there's death in the world, the reason there's suffering in the world is because of sin. But it's a general kind of thing. We're all sinners. But to draw the connection and say, good things happen to the better sinners or, or bad things happen to the worser sinners, Jesus says, that's a foul. That's not a, that's not a Christian worldview. You're going to be very confused about life if you come to those conclusions. He, he's just clearly making it, uh, his point that that's not the case. It's not the case. Let me ask you this as a, a question. Could those Galileans have been some of the most godly people around? I'm not saying they were, but they could, they could have been. You know people who, who seem to be the most godly people you know and the most upstanding Christians you know. You know some of those dear, sweet people. And their life is filled with tragedy. And you either know or you know of people who seem to be the most kind of sinister, awful, criminal kinds of people and they seem to have a great life. And you say, this is... Not a one-to-one connection. And Jesus would affirm that perspective. Sometimes the most hardened prosper. Now, he's going to do the same thing. So let's skip what he says in verse 3. We'll come back to it, I promise. But let's go to verse 4, and he'll, he'll say essentially the same thing with another illustration. So verse 4 says, Or those 18 on whom the, tire, uh, the tower excuse me, of Siloam fell. There's a... There's a a spring, a fountain, a place of cleansing and getting water back then from what we know, uh, southeast corner inside the city walls. Everyone would have known. We don't know where this is because we don't live there. But this is a common area everybody knows about. And there's a common tragedy. Everybody knows about the common tragedy. And the tower fell and killed them in verse 4. So Jesus likewise asks, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Commonly known tragedy, we might call it a natural disaster because it's not Pilate. This is a natural disaster. This is, you know, people were there and there was some kind of a a structural problem and it fell. And in, in today's contracts, it might say acts of God. You know, the, the, we, we don't ensure this if, in the case of an act of God. We mean a natural kind of disaster. Well, this could have been categorized as an act of God. It wasn't that somebody stabbed anybody. It wasn't that there was any brutality. The people were just gathered there getting their water, minding their own business. And the scaffolding or the tower or whatever it was, it fell and it killed, what did it say, 18 of them? And Jesus says, let me, let, me, let me push it a little bit more by asking you another question. Same question, different illustration. Were, were they worser? And he gives the answer, right? It's right there. Same answer. No! Don't think like that. Don't think like that. That might be a karma worldview, but it's not a Christian worldview. That's not the right perspective. Jesus answers 
quickly. He answers clearly. It's not that they didn't have enough faith so something bad happened to them. Jesus is so far away from that. Isn't that kind of weird? I'm going back there just for a second. Isn't it kind of weird that, while I don't know very many people who think like this, the ones that do really stand out, at least in 21st century America, are some professing Christians who, again, it's all about, do you have enough faith? And if you don't, bad things are going to happen. That's, that's not, Jesus didn't send that memo and he didn't get that memo. Fallen world, yes. Broken world, yes. Bad things happen in a broken, fallen world. And guess what? It's broken and fallen because of sin. Yes. But to then draw the one-to-one correlation and say, I know this bad thing happened because of this. Jesus says, don't go there. I'm super thankful for this. I hope in prayers you're super thankful. that you can. You can I wish you, you were never going to see another tragedy, but guess what? You know, it's a world filled with tragedy. We can look at it and say, how would Jesus want me to interpret this? Setting the record straight. Cutting through superstition. Cutting through paganistic kind of worldviews. Making it clear that's not how it is. Oh, by the way, let me ask you this question. What's the worst thing that's ever happened to a human being? There's a huge hint behind me. It's brushed metal. (laughs) The worst, most heinous thing that's ever happened to a human being is where the just, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, he's the law keeper. He's always done what is right. He's always loved God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. The just was then crucified for the unjust. You read about the prophet from the prophet Isaiah. It says he was marred more than any man. It was awful. It was an act of injustice. You see, so of all people, Christians should not be the kind of people who have a worldview and a perspective that says, if something bad happens to you, it's because you're bad. We're Christians. The worst thing ever happened to Christ and He was anything but bad. And so when you leave today and you witness the tragedy, you experience the tragedy, the tragedy is inflicted upon you or whatever it might be, we need to make sure that we we realize it's a broken world, bad things do happen. It's not necessarily because of something bad that I've done or somebody else has done and it's like bad karma. Super helpful. It amazes me sometimes when we say, well, man, that, that was so theological, you know, it's just not very practical. Now, I'm not telling you, you know, how to change diapers this morning and being practical like that. I'm not telling you how to mow your yard as a Christian. I'm not telling you how to, uh, you know, do those things, tie your shoes as a Christian. Because the Bible doesn't talk about those things because you're, you're smart enough to figure that stuff out. Practical is how you can think. You can think about the world around you. It's so practical because life is filled with hardships practical. I'm so thankful for the practicality of this theology. It's awesome. It's freeing. It's helpful. Now let's move to another lesson. Another lesson from Jesus. A lesson in repentance. Now, repentance is a word we don't like. I know we don't like it because we don't use it. I mean, how many of you in casual conversation, I can't put my hand up, in casual conversation this week, heard someone or you yourself use the word repent or repentance. There were a 
couple hands, you know, first hour. and Okay, so it, it does happen. And that doesn't happen very often. We, we don't use the word repent. We don't really like the word repent because it actually means change. And I don't like to change, and I don't like to be wrong. And if I have to change, it's because I am wrong. It's no wonder we don't like the word. But here's the thing. Jesus likes the word. And so it's probably a good idea to like the word. Okay, If you're going to understand Jesus and understand Christianity, repentance is something you need to know about as much as it hurts. So let's just have a quick lesson by way of preview to at least get us up to speed. What's he going to get at here? Most basically, the, the, the word in the original language most basically means a change of mind. Okay, It's a change of mind. Change of perspective. And oftentimes the Bible blends heart and mind. It's talking about the in, internal you, who you really are. And so, so if, you have a, if you repent, you have a change of perspective. And then we put it in the Bible's context. And so oftentimes, as it is in the gospel accounts and elsewhere, it's a change of mind, a radical shift in perspective about who Jesus is. Time and time again, that's how it's used. What's, it, it's so radical, your, your change of perspective, if you've repented, that it actually leads to behavior change too. It's not behavior change. We don't want, we don't want to blend the two. It's not behavior change. But John the Baptist, for example, would say, now you need to have deeds or actions keeping with repentance. Um, reflecting your repentance. If you've really had a change of mind about who Jesus Christ is, you should live like that, is the idea. And so, repentance is super important. And Jesus talks about it. John the Baptist talks about it. The Apostle Paul talks about it. Peter talks about it. The prophets in the Old Testament talk about it. Something we need to at least be familiar with. When you become a Christian, you, you repent. You used to see Jesus maybe as a prophet, maybe as a good teacher, maybe as a pretty decent person. When you become a Christian, you see Him for who He really is. Um, you see Him as the one who can take your sins away. Oh, by the way, you have to acknowledge that you're guilty of something and you're a sinner. And so that, that involves a radical work of repentance. And, and you're going to see Him as the one who is none other than the Eternal One and the one who, who, who made atonement for sins and the one who's been raised from the dead and the one who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies and on and on the list goes. You have a radical change of perspective about who Jesus is. One lesson Jesus is going to teach us about tragedy is a lesson about repentance. Get ready for this one. There are going to be some people who think he's going to need some sensitivity training. Okay, I don't think Jesus needs sensitivity training, but you might be tempted to think that he does in just a second, okay? Now let's go back to verse 3. Okay, so we saw the no at first, but notice what he says. It's very provocative. I tell you, but unless you repent you will all likewise perish. And I say, wow. We're talking about tragedy. And he says, there's a lesson to be learned from human tragedy. Unless you repent, unless you have a fundamental, radical change of mind, of heart about who I am, just have it be an object lesson for you. You're going to repent, or you're going to, you're going to perish too. Wow. And given that repentance is a spiritual matter, surely he's talking about a perishing that's a spiritual perishing. 
Surely Jesus, given the context, he's not saying, if you don't have a fundamental change of perspective about who I am and believe the truth about me, then you too are going to be killed by Pilate. Now, if we're talking about repentance, we're talking about a spiritual reality. We're talking about a perishing, no doubt. It's a spiritual perishing. In that sense, it's, to use my word again for the day, it's worser. It's condemnation. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm, I've, you know, I, I, I understand PC enough, political correctness enough to realize that, I mean, this is taking the gloves off. I mean, there's something in me that wants to push back and say, how dare you do that, Jesus? I mean, it's a crisis. We don't talk about a tragedy like that. Well, let's not make Jesus either or. If Jesus perfectly kept the law, guess what? He perfectly loved his neighbor as himself. So, so he's speaking pointedly here, but th- that doesn't mean that he just showed up on the scene when anybody was ever hurting and went, you know? Let's not assume he wasn't compassionate and kind and gracious and merciful because no doubt he was all of those things. And those things are Christian virtues and things that we should seek to emulate also. But it's, I'm going to say, sub-Christian if it's not fully Christian and doesn't include this here to talk to people about eternity. And he says, hey, look, let me love you so much that I'm going to tell you some other lesson you should learn about tragedy. Unless you repent, unless you have a radical change of perspective about who I am, you're going to perish. We can say that's mean or we can say that's kind. That's kind. You know, I want everybody to think I'm nice. I want to be nice. But I have to remember that, that at least where we are and kind of or, or how we function in our culture, you know, nice oftentimes means you don't tell people the truth. It's just good manners, you know. You don't talk about things like that. Well, I want to be nice and I want people to like me, but I want to be Christian too and I want you to be a Christian. Christ is, is, is acting like Christ here. <laughs> and he's telling about the most important thing in the whole world. It has to do with eternity. Change the way you view me, he's saying. Repent. This would have gone for his audience, obviously, because he said that. By way of application, it would go for everyone in this room. Unless you repent. And oh, by the way, human tragedies that you see on television or experience yourself give you a little flag-waving reminder. Unless you repent, you're going to perish too, but it will be worse. Now, returning to the second illustration, we hear the same thing. In verse 4, he talked about the, the, the Tower of Siloam. And then in verse 5, after saying no, he says, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Unless you see me for who I am, unless you embrace me for who I am. Now, let me ask you this question. How, how, how can Jesus say this? 
How, how can Jesus say this to everybody he's talking to? Unless you repent, unless you have a radical change of perspective about who I am. In other words, unless you believe in me, unless you trust in me, because that's the, that's the compliment to repentance, and that would be faith or trust. Unless you embrace me by faith, unless you repent, you will perish. How in the world can he say that? He can't say that if he's merely a prophet. He can't say that if he's merely a good teacher. He can't say that if he is anything less than the one we all need. Okay? Unless he's less than, as Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the, the one mediator between us and God. A mediator is where there's conflict. And if he's not that, he can't say this. But if he is that, he can say this. And, he, and how about this? He should say it, and it's kind and gracious for him to say it. He can say this because of who he is. Uh, think about it in these terms. The Bible, spe- the whole Bible storyline, the whole drama from Genesis to Revelation can be summarized in, in, in two people. Okay? Two, two people who are called Adam. Okay? The first Adam that we're aware of, that we know about, Adam. Okay? And Jesus, who is called in 1 Corinthians 15, the last Adam. So, so the Bible views things through that lens. There are two Adams. And the idea is there are two representatives. Okay? So Adam, the first Adam, represented the human race. And it didn't end well. And we're all naturally united to Adam. Okay? We're all, to use uh, theology talk, we're all in Adam. We're all united to Adam. He represented us. And those who believe, trust, rest in Christ, or, or we can say because of our text, repent. It's the other side of the same coin. Are in or united to the last Adam. Okay? And you say, why, why are you bringing that up? Because the last Adam satisfied the justice of God, the law of God. He fulfilled the law of God. The last Adam made atonement. He satisfied the last Adam was raised from the dead and he's called the firstborn from the dead because there are many brothers and sisters spiritually in him and he's our elder brother spiritually and he leads the way. If there are only two Adam representatives, the first Adam and the last Adam, Jesus, then Jesus can absolutely, truthfully, straightforwardly say, unless you repent regarding me, you will perish. If there are 17 million atoms, if there are three atoms, if there are four atoms, if there are many ways to God, in other words, is what I'm saying, then Jesus has no business saying this. But if he's the last Adam, the one mediator, the propitiation for our sins, he has every reason to say this. He is so logical, it's not even funny. I mean, you can fault Jesus for different things. I don't advise it. <laughs> but you, you can do it. But you can't fault him for being illogical. It makes all the sense in the world. It makes all the sense in the world. And by the way, that's why sin doesn't make sense. Unbelief doesn't make sense. Well, I just did things off the top of my head, but we could have taken time to go to Romans chapter 5 or 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which I think I referenced Genesis chapter 3, we won't take the time to do that. I just at least wanted to answer the question, how could Jesus say this? 
it makes me have to say to you, have you repented? I can't believe that guy said that in church. I can't believe I wouldn't say that. Because if you haven't, you too will likewise perish. It's the most loving, gracious, compassionate thing anybody could ever say. Now let's take it a step further. When you see human tragedy of all different kinds, does it remind you that you need to be a person who's repented? It should. Object lessons all around. Let's go a step further. Do you, when you help people who've experienced tragedy, because I hope you do, do, do you show compassion? I hope so. Do you weep with those who weep? I hope so. Do you show love for your neighbor because they're also made in the image of God like you, whether they're a Christian or not a Christian? I hope so. But I hope you don't stop there and act like a sub-Christian. I hope you do act like Christ and imitate Him and say, there's another lesson to be learned here. Doesn't mean it has to be the first thing out of your mouth. Doesn't mean it shouldn't be coded uh, with care and compassion, love and concern, praying for wisdom about the right time. But think about it. It's not mean. In fact, I think it might be mean not to. Let's think about that. Maybe one more thing to just point out to you before we move on that I think is helpful to remember. Uh, and that's according to, uh, according to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. Repentance is a gift from God. So it does cause me to pray for people. You know, God, grant them repentance. Because that's what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2. That God may grant them, gift them, grace them repentance. You know, we're spiritually blind on our own. We don't see Jesus for who He is. And so that's why we pray and we ask God to open eyes. God, grant repentance. That they would see Jesus for who, they, for who He really is. And, and, and have a fundamental, fundamental radical change of perspective and embrace Him for who He really is. It's a gift from God just like faith is a gift from God. So far from needing sensitivity training, I think Jesus wrote the book on sensitivity training and it includes telling the truth in the right way at the right time, even though it might be perceived as offensive. Let's move on to number three, finally. Number three, a lesson in mercy. There's a lesson in mercy. Mercy, by the way, is, is when you, you don't get what you deserve. Okay, so it's the, it's the friend of grace. Grace is when you get what you don't earn. Your paycheck is not grace. Okay? It's when you haven't worked for it and God gives you something. That's grace. Grace is not a thing. It's not a substance. It's not a gas. It, grace is nothing in the sense that salvation is by, only by God's grace. He, he gives it to us even though we didn't earn it. Okay? Mercy is its friend. It's compliment. Mercy is when God withholds the judgment that we deserve. Okay? It's, it's not getting what we have earned. And we're going to see here some, some mercy, okay? A parable about mercy. Let's go ahead and read in verse 6. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. 
And he said to the vine dresser, okay, so you've got the guy who's the owner and you have the guy who's the the, the foreman or the, the, the worker. And he said to the vine dresser, the worker, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then... If it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Okay, let that settle in your mind a little bit. Then I'm going to ask you to interpret it in context. If we just take it out of context, we could probably draw lots of different conclusions. I, I like to say you can make the Bible say anything, but I don't think so in context. What's Jesus been talking about? He's been talking about repentance. He's been talking about repentance rather forcefully. As you look at circumstances and we talk about crises, we talk about tragedies, you should learn from that. You need to repent. You need to have a change regarding who I am and your perspective. And then we have this parable. So if we interpret it in its flow, in its context, it would seem to be making the point about mercy, about patience, and about mercy running out about patience running out. Remember, parables are intended to make one one main point. All kinds of different cults and isms and schisms and spasms and other things have been started from parables. But we know sometimes Jesus interprets the parable for us, and the way he interprets, basically there's one big idea. The one big idea here, based upon the flow, would seem to be God is patient. Patient. We can further interpret it knowing that that axe image, that chopping image is used in the Old Testament and New Testament sometimes, oftentimes, for judgment. Like the Johnny Cash song goes, God is going to cut you down. Well, that's actually pretty informed biblically. It's even come up in Jesus' ministry already. Judgment is coming. But God is patient. God is long-suffering. Jesus is talking to people who he just said to repent and now he's saying, you know what? But judgment is coming. God is patient. God is waiting. God God is holding back. But the time is coming where there won't be any more mercy. There won't be any more patience. So there's urgency. There's something pressing. Now some people see this as a reference to the nation of Israel because they're oftentimes related to a tree, to a fig tree, to that kind of thing. And, 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 and that's true. Israel's been stiff-arming Jesus as a nation. So I, I would embrace that. But Jesus here is talking to individuals. And so I don't think it's either or. I think it's both and. Nationally and individually. Time is going to run out. Judgment is coming like I talked about in Luke chapter 3 verse 9. The chopping down. Hopefully you're saying, well, how do we apply this? No, hopefully you're saying, you don't need me to know how to apply this. You don't need to tell me. I know how to apply this. Tick, tock, tick, tock, right? God is merciful, gracious, compassionate, kind, long-suffering. But there is an end. So there's an urgency. And isn't it interesting how he's been talking about repentance in light of crises, in light of tragedy. You see a tragedy. You know about this tragedy. You know about that tragedy. You know what I want you to learn from it? I want you to learn to repent. And now he's talking about urgency. 
I'm not sure if Jesus wants us to connect these dots. I'm going to connect them by way of application and go out on a limb. As you see tragedies all around you, I think God's mercy. Think God's patience. He's giving you another illustration, another illustration. In so many ways, we wish there weren't any illustrations, but it is a broken world. And there's going to be another shooting, and there's going to be another hijacking, and there's going to be another natural disaster, and another tsunami, and another earthquake, and another bad accident, and another, and another, and another. And these are awful things, and one day they will end when Christ returns. But you've got to know that God works in a broken world, and even using the brokenness for our benefit, and they're all like stop signs. Check, cross that out. They're all like repent signs. Mercy, 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 mercy. And so when you see the tragedy, think about your repentance. Think about praying for the repentance of other people that they would see them as as little warning signs. You know the greatest tragedy, the tragedy of all tragedies? We'll end on this and then we'll Celebrate the Lord's Supper. The tragedy of all tragedies is that we wouldn't learn from tragedies. And Jesus is making it clear. He wants us to learn from tragedies. Not because He's mean, but because He's gracious. And so see Him for who He is even there. Not mean, but gracious and kind. Loving and compassionate. Repent and tell others of this as well. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this in some ways, exhausting thing. Because our world is filled with tragedies and, and, and we don't want any more tragedies. And it reminds me of Romans chapter 8 where, where even the, the whole world is groaning, waiting for the tragedy to end. And we know that it one day will end. And yet, sadly, we know that when the tragedies end, it means you've returned. And when you return and you execute justice on the earth and you put everything right the patience meter is going to be on zero. And so, Lord, grant repentance. Grant it abundantly. Grant it plentifully and allow us to even be used in the process of of lovingly, kindly, graciously, truthfully telling others of the need to have a radical change of perspective about who Jesus is. Thank you so much for uh, even giving us these these very simple, tangible reminders. Even as we join with Christians around the world, as we join with Christians throughout Christian history now, as we take bread, it's so simple. And as we take wine, it's so simple. And we remember why it is we should have a fundamental, radical change of perspective about who you are. Because you gave yourself up for us. to experience the wrath and judgment that we deserve, even though you didn't deserve any of it. And that you gave yourself up for us, even in coming here, doing everything right for us, even though we we weren't worthy of it. Thank you for giving yourself for us, and thank you for this good gift even now that we call communion, where we are reminded about what you've done for us. What a great blessing. What a great gift you've given to us. Use it. Use it in our lives even right now to strengthen us. Use it in our lives to strengthen us even as we go here, uh, go from here. That we would be reminded to, to be resting in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.